Chapter 12 of The New Treasure Seekers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chloe Winters The New Treasure Seekers by Edith Nesbitt Chapter 12 The Lady and the License, or Friendship's Garland My dear kitties, Miss Sandal's married sister has just come home from Australia, and she feels very tired. No wonder, you will say, after such a long journey. So she is going to Limchurch to rest. Now I want all of you to be very quiet, because when you are in your usual form you aren't exactly restful, are you? If this weather lasts, you will be able to be out most of the time, and when you are indoors for goodness' sake control your lungs and your boots, especially H.O.'s. Mrs. Bax has travelled about a good deal— and once was nearly eaten by cannibals. But I hope you won't bother her to tell you stories. She is coming on Friday. I am glad to hear from Alice's letter that you enjoyed the primrose fete. Tell Noel that poetical is not the usual way of spelling the word he wants. I send you ten shillings for pocket-money, and again implore you to let Mrs. Bax have a little rest and peace. Your loving father. P.S. If you want anything sent down, tell me, and I will get Mrs. Bax to bring it. I met your friend Mr. Redhouse the other day at lunch. When the letter had been read aloud, and we had read it to ourselves, a sad silence took place. Dickie was the first to speak. "'It is rather beastly, I grant you,' he said, "'but it might have been worse.' "'I don't see how,' said H.O. "'I do wish father would jolly well learn to leave my boots alone.' "'It might be worse, I tell you,' said Dickie. "'Suppose instead of telling us to keep out of doors it had been the other way.' "'Yes,' said Alice. "'Suppose it had been, "'Poor Mrs. Bax requires to be cheered up. "'Do not leave her side day or night. "'Take it in turns to make jokes for her. "'Let not a moment pass without some merry jest. "'Oh, yes, it might be much, much worse. "'Being able to go out all day makes it all right "'about trying to make that two pounds increase and multiply,' "'remarked Oswald. "'Now who's going to meet her at the station? "'Because, after all, it's her sister's house.' and we've got to be polite to visitors even if we're in a house we aren't related to. This was seen to be so, but no one was keen on going to the station. At last Oswald, ever ready for forlorn hopes, consented to go. We told Mrs. Beale, and she got the best room ready, scrubbing everything till it smelt deliciously of wet wood and mottled soap, and then we decorated the room as well as we could. "'She'll want some pretty things,' said Alice, coming from the land of parrots and opossums and gum-trees and things." We did think of borrowing the stuffed wildcat that is in the bar at the ship, but we decided that our decorations must be very quiet, and the wildcat, even in its stuffed state, was anything but. So we borrowed a stuffed roach in a glass box and stood it on the chest of drawers. It looked very calm. Seashells are quiet things when they are vacant, and Mrs. Beale let us have the four big ones off her chiffonniere. The girls got flowers, bluebells, and white wood anemones. We might have had poppies or buttercups, but we thought the colors might be too loud. We took some books up for Mrs. Bax to read in the night, and we took the quietest ones we could find. Sonnets of Sleep, Confessions of an Opium Eater, Twilight of the Gods, Diary of a Dreamer, and By Still Waters were some of them. The girls covered them with gray paper, because some of the bindings were rather gay. The girls hemmed gray calico covers for the drawers and the dressing table, and we drew the blinds half down, and when all was done the room looked as quiet as a roosting wood pigeon. We put in a clock, but we did not wind it up. "'She can do that herself,' said Dora, "'if she feels she can bear to hear it ticking.' Oswald went to the station to meet her. He rode on the box beside the driver. 
When the others saw him mount there, I think they were sorry they had not been polite and gone to meet her themselves. Oswald had a jolly ride. We got to the station just as the train came in. Only one lady got out of it, so Oswald knew it must be Mrs. Bax. If he had not been told how quiet she wanted to be, he would have thought she looked rather jolly. She had short hair and gold spectacles. Her skirts were short, and she carried a parrot-cage in her hand. It contained our parrot, and when we wrote to tell father that it and Pincher were the only things we wanted sent, we never thought she would have brought either. "'Mrs. Bax, I believe?' was the only break Oswald made in the polite silence that he took the parrot-cage and her bag from her in. "'How do you do?' she said very briskly for a tired lady, and Oswald thought it was noble of her to make the effort to smile. "'Are you Oswald or Dicky?" Oswald told her in one calm word which he was, and then Pincher rolled madly out of a dog-box almost into his arms. Pincher would not be quiet. Of course, he did not understand the need for it. Oswald conversed with Pincher in low, restraining whispers as he led the way to the ship's fly. He put the parrot-cage on the inside of the carriage, held the door open for Mrs. Bax with silent politeness, closed it as quietly as possible, and prepared to mount on the box. Oh, "'Won't you come inside?' asked Mrs. Bax. "'Do?' "'No, thank you,' said Oswald, in calm and mouse-like tones. And, to avoid any more jaw, he got at once on to the box with Pincher. So that Mrs. Bax was perfectly quiet for the whole six miles, unless you count the rattle and shake up and down of the fly. On the box Oswald and Pincher tasted the sweets of a blissful reunion like it says in novels, and the man from the ship looked on and said how well-bred Pincher was. It was a happy drive. There was something almost awful about the sleek, quiet tidiness of the others, who were all standing in a row outside the cottage to welcome Mrs. Bax. They all said, "'How do you do?' in hushed voices, and all looked as if butter would not melt in any of their young mouths. I never saw a more soothing-looking lot of kids. She went to her room, and we did not see her again till tea-time. Then, still exquisitely brushed and combed, we sat around the board in silence. We had left the tea-tray place for Mrs. Bax, of course. But she said to Dora, "'Wouldn't you like to pour out?' And Dora replied in low, soft tones, "'If you wish me to, Mrs. Bax, I usually do.' And she did. We passed each other bread and butter and jam and honey with silent courteousness, and of course we saw that she had enough to eat. "'Do you manage to amuse yourselves pretty well here?' she asked presently. We said, "'Yes, thank you,' in hushed tones. "'What do you do?' she asked. We did not wish to excite her by telling her what we did, so Dicky murmured, "'Nothing in particular,' at the same time that Alice said, "'All sorts of things.' "'Tell me about them,' said Mrs. Bax invitingly. We replied by a deep silence. She sighed and passed her cup for more tea. "'Do you ever feel shy?' she asked suddenly. "'I do, dreadfully, with new people.' We liked her for saying that, and Alice replied that she hoped she would not feel shy with us. "'I hope not,' she said. "'Do you know there was such a funny woman in the train? She had seventeen different parcels, and she kept counting them, and one of them was a kitten, and it was always under the seat when she began to count, so she always got the number wrong. We should have liked to hear about the kitten, especially what colour it was and how old, but Oswald felt that Mrs. Bax was only trying to talk for our sakes, so that we shouldn't feel shy, so he simply said, "'Will you have some more cake?' and nothing more was said about the kitten. Mrs. Bax seemed very noble. She kept trying to talk to us about Pincher and trains and Australia, 
but we were determined she should be quiet as she wished it so much, and we restrained our brimming curiosity about opossums up gum-trees and about emus and kangaroos and wattles, and only said yes or no or, more often, nothing at all. When tea was over we melted away, like snow-wreaths in thawgene, and went out on the beach and had a yelling match. Our throats felt as though they were full of wool from the hushed tones we had used in talking to Mrs. Bax. Oswald won the match. Next day we kept carefully out of the way, except for meals. Mrs. Bax tried talking again at breakfast-time, but we checked our wish to listen, and passed the pepper, salt, mustard, bread, toast, butter, marmalade, and even the cayenne vinegar and oil, with such politeness that she gave up. We took it in turns to watch the house and drive away organ-grinders. We told them they must not play in front of that house, because there was an Australian lady who had to be kept quiet, and they went at once. This cost us expense, because an organ-grinder will never consent to fly the spot under two pence a flight. We went to bed early. We were quite weary with being so calm and still, but we knew it was our duty, and we liked the feel of having done it. The day after was the day Jake Lee got hurt. Jake is the man who drives about the country in a covered cart, with pins and needles and combs and frying pans, and all the sort of things that farmers' wives are likely to want in a hurry, and no shops for miles. I have always thought Jake's was a beautiful life. I should like to do it myself. Well, this particular day he had got his cart all ready to start, and had got his foot on the wheel to get up, when a motor car went by puffing and hooting. I always think motor cars seem so rude somehow. And the horse got frightened, and no wonder. It shied, and poor Jake was thrown violently to the ground, and hurt so much that they had to send for the doctor. Of course, we went and asked Mrs. Jake if we could do anything, such as take the cart out and sell the things to the farmer's wives, but she thought not. It was after this that Dickie said, "'Why shouldn't we get things of our own and go and sell them with Bates' donkey?' Oswald was thinking the same thing, but he wishes to be fair, so he owns that Dickie spoke first. We all saw at once that the idea was a good one. "'Shall we dress up for it?' H.O. asked. We thought not. It is always good sport to dress up, but I have never heard of people selling things to farmers' wives in really beautiful disguises. "'We ought to go as shabby as we can,' said Alice. "'But somehow that always seems to come natural to your clothes when you have done a few interesting things in them. We have plenty of clothes that look poor but deserving. What shall we buy to sell?' "'Pins and needles and tape and bodkins,' said Dora. "'Butter,' said Noel. "'It is terrible when there's no butter.' "'Honey is nice,' said H.O., "'and so are sausages. "'Jake has ready-made shirts and corduroy trousers. "'I suppose a farmer's shirt and trousers may give it any moment,' said Alice. "'And if he can't get new ones, he has to go to bed till they are mended.' "'Oswald thought tin tacks and glue and string must often be needed "'to mend barn and farm tools with if they broke suddenly. "'And Dickie said, "'I think the pictures of ladies hanging onto crosses in foaming seas are good. "'Jake told me he sold more of them than anything. "'I suppose people suddenly break the old ones, "'and home isn't home without a lady holding onto a cross. "'We went to Munn's shop, and we bought needles and pins "'and tapes and bodkins, a pound of butter, a pot of honey, and one of marmalade, and tin tacks, string, and glue, but we could not get any ladies with crosses, and the shirts and trousers were too expensive for us to dare to risk it. Instead, we bought a headstall for eighteen pence, because how providential we should be to a farmer whose favorite horse had escaped and he had nothing to catch it with, and three tin openers, in case of a distant farm subsisting entirely on tin things, and the only opener for miles lost down the well or something. 
We also bought several other thoughtful and far-sighted things. That night at supper, we told Mrs. Bax we wanted to go out for the day. She had hardly said anything that supper time, and now she said, "'Where are you going, teaching Sunday school?' As it was Monday, we felt her poor brain was wandering, most likely for want of quiet, and the room smelt of tobacco smoke, so we thought someone had been to see her and perhaps been too noisy for her. So Oswald said gently, "'No, we're not going to teach Sunday school.' And Mrs. Bax sighed. Then she said, "'I am going out myself to-morrow, for the day.' "'I hope it will not tire you too much,' said Dora, with soft voice and cautious politeness. "'If you want anything bought, we could do it for you, with pleasure, and you could have a nice quiet day at home.' "'Thank you,' said Mrs. Bax shortly, and we saw she would do what she chose, whether it was really for her own good or not. She started before we did next morning, and we were careful to be mouse-quiet till the ship's fly which contained her was out of hearing. Then we had another yelling competition, and Noel won with that new shriek of his that is like railway engines in distress, and then we went and fetched Bates' donkey and cart, and packed our bales in it, and started, some riding and some running behind. Any faint distant traces of respectableness that were left to our clothes were soon covered up by the dust of the road and by some of the ginger-beer bursting through the violence of the cart, which had no springs. The first farm we stopped at, the woman really did want some pins, for though a very stupid person, she was making a pink blouse, and we said, "'Do have some tape. You never know when you may want it.' "'I believe in buttons,' she said. "'No string for me, thank you.' But when Oswald said, "'What about pudding-strings? You can't button up puddings as if they were pillows.' She consented to listen to reason, but it was only two pence altogether. But at the next place the woman said we were mummickers, and told us to get along do, and she set her dog at us. But when Pincher sprang from the inmost recesses of the cart, she called her dog off. But too late, for it and Pincher were locked in the barking, scuffling, growling embrace of deadly combat. When we had separated the dogs, she went into her house and banged the door, and we went on through the green flat marshes, among the buttercups and maybushes. "'I wonder what she meant by mummickers,' said H.O. "'She meant she saw our high-born heirs through our shabby clothes,' said Alice. "'It's always happening, especially to princes. There's nothing so hard to conceal as a really high-bred heir.' "'I've been thinking,' said Dicky, "'whether honesty wouldn't perhaps be the best policy,' "'Not always, of course, but just this once. "'If people knew what we were doing it for, "'they might be glad to help on the good work, what?' "'So at the next farm, which was half hidden by trees, "'like the picture at the beginning of Sensible Susan, "'we tied the pony to the gate-post and knocked at the door. "'It was opened by a man this time, and Dora said to him, "'We are honest traders. "'We're trying to sell these things to keep a lady who is poor. "'If you buy some, you will be helping too. "'Wouldn't you like to do that? "'It is a good work.' "'and you will be glad of it afterwards "'when you come to think over the acts of your life.' "'Upon my word and honour," said the man, "'whose red face was surrounded by a frill of white whiskers, "'if ever I saw a walking tract, here it stands.' "'She doesn't mean to be tractish,' said Oswald quickly. "'It's only her way. "'But we really are trying to sell things to help a poor person. "'No humbug, sir. "'So if we have got anything you want, we shall be glad. "'And if not, well, there's no harm in asking, is there, sir?' The man with the frilly whiskers was very pleased to be called Sir, Oswald knew he would be, and he looked at everything we got, and bought the headstall and two tin-openers, and a pot of marmalade, and a ball of string, and a pair of braces. This came to four and twopence, and we were very pleased. It really seemed that our business was establishing itself root and branch. 
When it came to its being dinner-time, which was first noticed through H.O. beginning to cry and say he did not want to play any more, it was found that we had forgotten to bring any dinner, so we had to eat some of our stock, the jam, the biscuits, and the cucumber. "'I feel a new man,' said Alice, draining the last of the ginger-beer bottles. "'At that homely village on the brow of yonder hill we shall sell all that remains of the stock and go home with money in both pockets.' But our luck had changed, as so often happens our hearts beat high with hopeful thoughts, and we felt jollier than we had done all day. Merry laughter and snatches of musical song re-echoed from our cart, and from round it as we went up the hill. All nature was smiling and gay. There was nothing sinister in the look of the trees or the road or anything. Dogs are said to have inside instincts that warn them of intending perils, but Pincher was not a bit instinctive that day somehow. He sported gaily up and down the hedge-banks after pretending rats, and once he was so excited that I believe he was playing at weasels and stouts, but of course there was really no trace of these savage denizens of the jungle. It was just Pincher's varied imagination. We got to the village, and with joyful expectations we knocked at the first door we came to. Alice had spread out a few choice treasures—needles, pins, tape, a photograph frame, and the butter, rather soft by now— and the last of the tin openers on a basket lid, like the fishman does with herrings and whitings and plums and apples. You cannot sell fish in the country unless you sell fruit, too. The author does not know why this is. The sun was shining, the sky was blue. There was no sign at all of the intending thunderbolt, not even when the door was opened. This was done by a woman. She just looked at our basket lid of things anyone might have been proud to buy, and smiled. I saw her do it. Then she turned her traitorous head and called, Jam! into the cottage. A sleepy grunt rewarded her. "'Jim, I say,' she repeated. "'Come here directly, minute!' Next moment Jim appeared. He was Jim to her because she was his wife, I suppose, but to us he was the police, with his hair ruffled, from his hateful sofa cushions, no doubt, and his tunic unbuttoned. "'What's up?' he said in a husky voice, as if he had been dreaming that he had a cold. "'Can't a chap have a minute himself to read the paper in?' "'You told me to,' said the woman." You said if any folks come to the door with things I was to call you whether or no. Even now we were blind to the disaster that was entangling us in the meshes of its trap. Alice said, We've sold a good deal, but we've some things left, very nice things, these crochet needles. But the police, who had buttoned up his tunic in a hurry, said quite fiercely, Let's have a look at your license. We didn't bring any, said Noel, but if you will give us an order we'll bring you some tomorrow. He thought a license was a thing to sell that we ought to have thought of. "'None of your lip,' was the unexpected reply of the now plainly brutal constable. "'Where's your license, I say?' "'We have a license for our dog, but father's got it,' said Oswald, always quick-witted, but not, this time, quite quick enough. "'Your auger's license is what I want, as well you knows, you young limb. Your peddler's license, your license to sell things. You ain't half so half-witted as you want to make out.' "'We haven't got a peddler's license,' said Oswald. "'If we had been in a book, the police would have been touched to tears by Oswald's simple honesty. "'He would have said, "'Noble boy,' and then gone on to say he had only asked the question to test our honour. "'But life is not really at all the same as books. "'I have noticed lots of differences. "'Instead of behaving like the book police, this thick-headed constable said, "'Blowed if I wasn't certain of it. "'Well, my young blokes,' "'You'll just come along o' me to Sir James. "'I've got orders to bring up the next case afore him.' "'Case?' said Dora. "'Oh, don't. We didn't know we oughtn't to. We only wanted—' "'Oh, yes,' said the constable. 
You can tell all that to the magistrate, and anything you say will be used against you. I'm sure it will, said Oswald. Dora, don't lower yourself to speak to him. Come, we'll go home. The police was combing its hair with a half-toothless piece of comb, and we turned to go, but it was vain. Ere any of our young and eager legs could climb into the cart, the police had seized the donkey's bridle. We could not desert our noble steed, and besides, it wasn't really ours but Bates's, and his made any hope of flight quite a forlorn one. For better, for worse, we had to go with the donkey. "'Don't cry, for goodness' sake,' said Oswald in stern undertones. "'Bite your lips. Take long breaths. Don't let him see we mind. This beast's only the village police. Sir James will be a gentleman. He'll understand.' "'Don't disgrace the house of Bastable. Look here. Fall into line. No, Indian fire will be best. There are so few of us. Alice, if you snivel, I'll never say you ought to have been a boy again. H.O., shut your mouth. No one's going to hurt you. You're too young.' "'I am trying,' said Alice, gasping. "'No,' Oswald went on now, as so often, showing the brilliant qualities of the born leader and general. "'Don't you be in a funk. Remember how Byron fought for the Greeks at Missy What's-Its-Name?' He didn't grouse, and he was a poet like you. Now look here, let's be game. Dora, you're the eldest. Strike up. Any tune. We'll march up and show this sneak we bastables aren't afraid, whoever else is. You will perhaps find it difficult to believe, but we did strike up. We sang The British Grenadiers, and when the police told us to stow it, we did not. And Noel said, Singing isn't dogs or peddling. You don't want a license for that. I'll soon show you, said the police but he had to jolly well put up with our melodious song, because he knew that there isn't really any law to prevent you singing if you want to. We went on singing. It soon got easier than at first, and we followed Bates' donkey and cart through some lodge gates, and up a drive with big trees, and we came out in front of a big white house, and there was a lawn. We stopped singing when we came inside of the house, and got ready to be polite to Sir James. There were some ladies on the lawn in pretty blue and green dresses. This cheered us, Ladies are seldom quite heartless, especially when young. The police drew up Bates' donkey opposite the big front door with pillars and rang the bell. Our hearts were beating desperately. We cast glances of despair at the ladies. Then, quite suddenly, Alice gave a yell that wild Indian war-whoops are simply nothing to, and tore across the lawn and threw her arms around the green waist of one of the ladies. "'Oh, I'm so glad!' she cried. "'Oh, save us! We haven't done anything wrong, really and truly we haven't!' And then we saw that the lady was our own Mrs. Redhouse, that we liked so much. So we all rushed to her, and before that police had got the door answered, we had told her our tale. The other ladies had turned away when we approached her, and gone politely away into a shrubbery. "'There, there,' she said, patting Alice and Noel and as much of the others as she could get hold of. "'Don't you worry, dear Stones. I'll make it all right with Sir James.' Let's all sit down in a comfy heap and get our breaths again. I'm so glad to see you all. My husband met your father at lunch the other day. I meant to come over and see you tomorrow. You cannot imagine the feelings of joy and safeness that we felt now we had found someone who knew we were bastables, and not vagrant outcasts like the police thought. The door had now been answered. We saw the base police talking to the person who answered it. Then he came towards us, very red in the face. "'Leave off bothering the lady,' he said. "'And come along with me. Sir James is in his library, and he's ready to do justice on you, so he is.' Mrs. Redhouse jumped up, and so did we. She said with smiles, as if nothing was wrong, "'Good morning, Inspector.' He looked pleased and surprised, as well he might, for it'll be long enough before he's within a mile of being that. "'Good morning, miss, I'm sure,' he replied. 
"'I think there's been a little mistake, Inspector,' she said. "'I expect it's some of your men, led away by zeal for their duties, but I'm sure you will understand. I am staying with Lady Harborough, and these children are very dear friends of mine.' The police looked very silly, but he said something about hawking without a license. "'Oh, no, not hawking,' said Mrs. Redhouse. "'Not hawking, surely. They were just playing at it, you know. Your subordinates must have been quite mistaken.' Our honesty bade us say that he was his own subordinate, and that he hadn't been mistaken, but it is rude to interrupt, especially a lady, so we said nothing. The police said firmly, "'You'll excuse me, miss, but Sir James expressly told me to lay a information directly next time I caught any of them at it without a license.' "'But you see, you didn't catch them at it.' Mrs. Redhouse took some money out of her purse. "'You might just give this to your subordinates to console them for the mistake they've made.' "'And, look here, these mistakes do lead to trouble sometimes, so I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll promise not to tell Sir James a word about it, so nobody will be blamed.' We listened breathless for his reply. He put his hands behind him. "'Well, miss,' he said at last, "'you've managed to put the force in the wrong somehow, which isn't often done, and I'm blessed if I know how you make it out. But there's Sir James a-waiting for me to come before him with my complaint. What am I a-going to say to him?' "'Oh, anything!' said Mrs. Redhouse. Surely someone else has done something wrong that you can tell him about? There was a matter of a couple of snares and some night lines, he said slowly, drawing nearer to Mrs. Redhouse. But I couldn't take no money, of course. Of course not, she said. I beg your pardon for offering it. But I'll give you my name and address, and if ever I can be of any use to you— She turned her back on us while she wrote it down with a stumpy pencil he lent her but Oswald could swear that he heard money chink, and that there was something large and round wrapped up in the paper she gave him. "'Sorry for any little misunderstanding,' the police now said, feeling the paper with his fingers. "'And my respect to you, miss, and your young friends. I'd best be going.' And he went, to Sir James, I suppose. He seemed quite tamed. I hope the people who set the snares got off. "'So, that's all right,' said Mrs. Redhouse. "'Oh, you dear children, you must stay to lunch, and we'll have a splendid time.' "'What a darling princess you are,' Noel said slowly. "'You are a witch princess, too, with magic powers over the police.' "'It's not a very pretty sort of magic,' she said, and she sighed. "'Everything about you is pretty,' said Noel, and I could see him beginning to make the faces that always procure his poetry fits. But before the fit could break out thoroughly, the rest of us awoke from our stupor of grateful safeness and began to dance around Mrs. Redhouse in a ring.' and the girls sang, The rose is red, the violet's blue, carnation's sweet, and so are you, over and over again, so we had to join in, though I think she's a jolly good fellow would have been more manly and less like a poetry book. Suddenly a known voice broke in on our singing. "'Well,' it said, and we stopped dancing, and there were the other two ladies who had politely walked off when we first discovered Mrs. Redhouse, and one of them was Mrs. Bax, of all people in the world— and she was smoking a cigarette, so now we knew where the smell of tobacco came from in the White House. We said, oh, in one voice, and were silent. "'Is it possible,' said Mrs. Bax, "'that these are the Sunday school children I've been living with these three long days?' "'We're sorry,' said Dora softly. "'We wouldn't have made a noise if we'd known you were here.' "'So I suppose,' said Mrs. Bax. "'Chloe, you seem to be a witch. How have you galvanized my six rag-dolls into life like this?' "'Rag-dolls!' said H.O. before we could stop him. 
I think you're jolly mean and ungrateful, and it was sixpence for making the organs fly. My brain's reeling, said Mrs. Bax, putting her hands to her head. H.O. is very rude, and I'm sorry, said Alice, but it is hard to be called ragdolls when you've only tried to do as you were told. And then, in answer to Mrs. Redhouse's questions, we told how father had begged us to be quiet, and how we had earnestly tried to. When it was told, Mrs. Bax began to laugh, and so did Mrs. Redhouse, and at last Mrs. Bax said, "'Oh, my dears, you don't know how glad I am that you're really alive.' I began to think, oh, I don't know what I thought, and you're not ragdolls, you're heroes and heroines, every man jack of you, and I do thank you, but I never wanted to be quiet like that. I just didn't want to be bothered with London and tiresome grown-up people. And now let's enjoy ourselves. Shall it be rounders or stories about cannibals? Rounders first and stories after, said H.O., and it was so. Mrs. Bax, now that her true nature was revealed, proved to be A-1, the author does not ask for a jollier person to be in the house with. We had rare larks the whole time she stayed with us, and to think that we might never have known her true character if she hadn't been an old school friend of Mrs. Redhouse's, and if Mrs. Redhouse hadn't been such a friend of ours. Friendship, as Mr. William Smith so truly says in his book about Latin, is the crown of life. End of chapter 12 of The New Treasure Seekers by Edith Nesbitt Read by Chloe Winters, January 2008.